You're listening to the Entmoot Podcast, the podcast about the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and how they intersect with political philosophy. This is episode four, Frodo Lives, in which co-hosts Kenny and Sam discuss the influence of Lord of the Rings on the American counterculture of the 1960s. Later in the episode, stay tuned for an interview with Professor Maurice Isserman, a scholar of the 1960s, as well as a former teacher of both of your co-hosts. Welcome, listeners, to episode four of the Entmoot podcast. I am your co-host, Kenny Tallarico, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend, Sam Lieberman. Sam, how are you? I'm good, good, doing well. And uh, today we are going to be talking about the relationship of the 1960s counterculture with uh, Tolkien's work, specifically The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Uh, it's also worth saying up front that later on you're going to hear uh, an excellent interview, uh, if I do say so myself, with uh, Maurice Isserman. It was excellent because of him, not necessarily because of me. Uh, and uh, Sam, why don't you talk about who Maurice Isserman is before we even talk about any of the other stuff? Yeah, so Maurice Isserman is a uh, historian at Hamilton College. Uh, where I currently am a student and Kenny is an alumnus of. Uh, we and him have actually both had uh, Isserman as our professor before. Um, he is a historian of uh, multiple things, but primarily the American left, um, and in more recent years, mountaineering. He also is of the uh, exact uh, age and demographic that he was very much involved in the counterculture the counterculture of the 60s uh himself. He went to college in uh 1968 or 9, uh, I forget which one, but uh, he was uh himself in, at, at Reed no less. At Reed College in 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 Oregon and he was uh very much involved in uh the you know new left uh, all of that stuff. Uh, so he's not only a scholar of it, he also has his own, you know, personal anecdotes and experience. Um, but before we get to that interview, I think Sam and I just wanted to talk a little bit about the very basics of, of, of what we're talking about right here. So uh, when you're talking about Tolkien's relationship to the 60s counterculture, they share a few things in common. Uh, the counterculture is essentially anarchist in its overarching political orientation, and Maurice gets into that in our interview. Uh and this, of course, is despite claims by by some within the within the movement of you know allegiance to Lenin or or, or Mao or other sort of uh, you know Marxist or communist leaders. Uh, it, it really is. It really diverges significantly from uh, you know the the old left or whatever you want to call it, which was very much more sort of doctrinaire in its understanding of of Marxist theory. And of course, the counterculture is to be distinguished from the new left, which again, Maurice does in our, in our interview, but um, the new left is sort of a, sort of a subset in a lot of ways of the greater counterculture. And you can still sort of talk about the, the counterculture as having a sort of political ideology, whether, you know, it's, it's, it's going to by definition be pretty broad, but it is sort of generally anarchist left leaning. Uh, and it, and it is very much less sort of focused exclusively on labor like uh like the old left was and much more interested in 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 cultural and social identity yes very much so so the counterculture loved tolkien 
Uh, Tolkien uh, probably didn't really understand the counterculture, but if he did, he definitely was not a fan. Uh, I would say they have almost nothing in common, actually. Um, Tolkien was an old Oxford professor who, uh, you know, wore tweed and refused to eat French food. Uh, he certainly would not even consider smoking cannabis, let alone, like, doing acid or uh, running away from home or, like, any of these iconic countercultural things. I don't... I can't even imagine how he would react to, like, hearing the Beatles. Uh, <laughs> although although it is worth noting that uh, the Beatles wanted to make a, uh, a film adaptation oh, of Lord of the Rings. Oh, yes, they did. In the late 60s. This is a... This is a key piece of, of, of lore that everyone who was on Reddit in, like, 2013 will be aware exactly. of. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I got posted a lot back then. Uh, maybe it still does. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, no, there's, there's – it's so funny because it's so obvious the reasons why the counterculture loved Lord of the Rings. And it's for, you know, many of the same reasons I love Lord of the Rings. Oh, not all, but, you know, many of them. But, man, it is really impossible – to imagine Tolkien, like, hanging out with a bunch of hippies in, like, San Francisco in, like, 1968. Like, yeah, no, that, that would be the... Almost inconceivable. That would be the place in the world that he would least want to be, other than, like, maybe France. He'd probably rather be there than France, though, by the end of his life. That's true. <laughs> um, one thing that I think Tolkien and the counterculture broadly do genuinely have in common is the interest in environmentalism. Uh and I, th- you know, I think that they they might come from you know somewhat different places uh, in terms of you know motives. I think Tolkien is it's a inherently sort of conservative view of longing for the pre-industrial period of you know before the before the car uh, and you know spoiling the, the the beautiful English countryside. Whereas I think for many in the counterculture, it may have been a you know sort of an act of rebellion. Uh, against like suburban sort of conformity, they would associate with pollution and with and with lots of cars and you know roads and stuff but still I, th- I think that you sort of get the same uh overlap there in environmentalism and environmentalism is really one of the one of the big great themes of of lord of the rings um a few other things that that the counterculture probably saw in lord of the rings uh certainly more superficially uh you know obviously drug culture is very important to the counterculture and of course the hobbits are always smoking that pipe weed one point that Isserman made in our interview that uh, I, I'd like to just repeat here is that there's also the the idea of uh, Frodo taking the ring to Mordor, and uh, it's to tear. Basically, it's the idea of we need to tear it all down. The system is too corrupt to reform it. That's what you know. People in the that's what members of the New Left and the counterculture would have been and were saying in the '60s uh, that you know you can't. We can't elect Hubert Humphrey in 1968. He's not going to fix the problem because, I mean, first of all, he's not running on fixing the problem, but he also is part of the problem. Anyone who's in government is part of the problem. You need to just, you know, not vote or whatever. Um, and, you know, the, the the using rather than, you know, using the ring and uh, and corrupting yourself by participation in the system, you uh, you work to destroy the system and that's what frodo does frodo doesn't you know give the ring to boromir and allow boromir and uh and and gondor to use the ring uh to defeat sauron 
because at that point, uh, you know, what is the distinction between Sauron and, uh, and, 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 and the men of Gondor? You need to destroy the ring, destroy the entire system, uh, because the system is unjust and, uh, you're not gonna, there's no way around that without destroying it. You cannot reform it. Which definitely applies well to a two-party democracy. <laughs> I I have wrote in Jill Stein in every election that I voted in. I did actually write in last time. I lied about voting for Biden. I actually wrote in John Kasich because we needed unity is what we needed. Well, that's true. You know, when I saw him speak at the Democratic convention, I was just so moved that I vowed to never vote for anyone other than John Kasich in any election. <laughs> there is a famous basketball commentator... Um, like one of like, I don't know, maybe one of the most famous ever. Um, he like hosted like the main, like mid game basketball show. And I remember, um, during the 2016, like after Trump got elected, like on inside the NBA, like Ernie and then Shaq and Charles Barkley, they're all talking about it. And then he's like, man, I'm a Republican, but even I couldn't vote for him. So I wrote in John Kasich (laughs) and then everyone else up there, like Charles Barkley and Shaq were like, wow, that's so dope, man. And I'm thinking like, what? Like, is it? (laughs) No. I don't know. That's bad. I don't know if that's that dope, We're actually. We're party system. <laughs> yeah. So Sam and I, before we do the interview here, this is the, the one last thing. Sam and I were sort of discussing this idea that clearly to, you know, the counterculture, Mordor is, is representative of the military-industrial complex. And so we were sort of, uh, we were sort of continuing that, uh, that analogy. And we were thinking, hmm. Does that make Sauron Lyndon Johnson? So I really have to give Kenny all of the credit for this. My, my, my small brain could not have uh, come up with this. But so, so Kenny thought, is Sauron, uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson? Then who is Saruman? And he, he, and 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 it sort of logically follows that he would have been Hubert Humphrey. So now that we've established Sauron as Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> And Saruman is Hubert Humphrey. Who is Gandalf? Well, it's 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 the one who defeats Hubert Humphrey, which would be Richard Nixon. Exactly. And then this is where it all really comes together. <laughs> who is a key ally of Gandalf, of the same class as him, of the same sort of role as him? And this is how we can derive Radagast as Henry Kissinger. Yeah, no, exactly. And I don't think there's really any problems with that analogy. I think it's perfect. Okay, so now uh, we're going to move into my interview with uh, Professor Isserman. Uh, this is just me talking to, to Maury. Sam was, off in, uh, Sam was off in Lake Placid on I vacation. Was. I had never been there before. It was, it was quite nice. It is, it is great. Did you visit uh, John Brown's cabin? I did. Not only did I visit John Brown's cabin, but at the... Uh, incredibly beautiful display around the statue of him i i was like borderline moved to tears yes it was it, it is a it is a beautiful experience i myself was there for the first time uh a couple months ago and it was uh it's it's great but anyway we digress uh so this is just me talking to professor maurice isserman uh I would like to mention before the interview uh professor isserman is the author of more than 15 books including if I Had a Hammer, The Death of the Old Left and the Birth of the New Left, America Divided, The Civil War of the 1960s, which he co-wrote with the great historian Michael Kazin, A Continental Divide, A History of American Mountaineering, 
and most recently, The Winter Army, the World War II Odyssey of the 10th Mountain Division, America's Elite Alpine Warriors, which is out now in paperback from Mariner Books. So, uh, we bring you now a special Entmoot Pod presentation, uh, my interview with Professor Maury Sisserman. Okay, uh, so I'm here with Morris Isserman. Thanks so much for, for joining me, Professor. How are you? I'm fine, Kenny. My pleasure to be here. So you are an expert on uh, the 60s counterculture and the, the new left. I was thinking that we could start with a brief summary of the 1960s counterculture, like what were its origins, its goals, important organizations. I know it's a really broad question, but... Yeah, that would take about an hour or so, but um, <laughs> briefly, you have a convergence of um, a collection of factors that produce what we think of as the 60s, in quotation marks. Uh, one of them, of course, is the baby boom. You just have this um, demographic bump coming along, um, uh, children, babies born between 1945 and 1964, who um, someone compared them to the pig in the python. If you imagine a python swallowing a pig, and there they go down the digestive tract, and you can follow the pig progress through the python all the way. And similarly, you can follow the progress of the baby boom from um, nursery schools, through elementary schools, through high schools, through college enrollments, down to today to uh, nursing homes and cemeteries. Uh, so my generation has always been uh, kind of an anomaly in American demographics. So you have like, this critical mass of young people coming along uh, and coming of age, many of them, like myself, in the 1960s. Um, and you also have a, um, a, a series of crises uh, in American society, one around race, uh, the uh, emergence of the civil rights movement, which has a long prehistory, but comes into its fullest and most effective strength in the 60s and, and introduces the idea of freedom and, and agency and you can change history. Uh, and also the war in Vietnam which um, not only unpopular, but directly impinges on the baby boom in the uh, most powerful way in that the male half of the baby boom, which includes me, uh, were liable for the draft. Every um, young man turning 18 had to register for the draft. And if he didn't have a student deferment, and only for as long as you had a college student to avoid the draft and the possibility of being sent to Vietnam. So all these things, plus the general prosperity of the decade, which gives people a sense of choices and options, um, came together to create a particular moment when young people felt they could experiment with new lifestyles, uh, new philosophies, postpone adulthood or postpone mortgages and nine to five jobs anyway. Um, and uh, again, experiment. So we haven't seen the likes of it before the sixties and we certainly haven't seen the likes of it since. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's great. And that's a perfectly acceptable summary in the uh, short amount of time that we have. Um, so, and you kind of already got into it in that, but uh, could you just briefly talk about what you yourself were, were up to in the 1960s and, and how you uh, 
sort of fit into the the counterculture? Sure. I um, uh, was born in 1951, so I'm child of the 50s and the 60s. Uh, but I became a teenager in 1964, the year that Lyndon Johnson uh, was elected president in his own right, a year after John F. Kennedy's assassination, uh, a year between the Birmingham protests and March on uh, the Selma protests. Uh, so right at the height of the civil rights movement, and also the very beginning of the protests against the war in Vietnam, because it's when I'm 14 that uh, Lyndon Johnson dramatically escalates what had been a low-level conflict up to that point. Draft calls go up, and suddenly Americans who couldn't find Vietnam on a map up to that point are becoming preoccupied with this war in Southeast Asia. So, and at the same time, you have the emergence of a uh, campus um, anti-war, pro-civil rights movement, camp and campus radicalism. Locally free speech movement is 1964, again, when I was 13. And when I go off to college uh, in the fall of 1968, it is the absolute height of uh, campus protest, anti-war protest, um, the counterculture, uh, hippies, uh, and so forth. So, uh, call it good timing or bad timing, but there I was. So that was the world I, I was stepping into. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I guess related to that, when did you yourself first learn about uh, the Lord of the Rings and uh, and, Tol and Professor Tolkien's writing? Yeah, um, I should have looked this up. The, the paperback edition comes out in, a, I think it was Ballantine Books, in the U.S., all three volumes of the Lord of the Rings and a separate volume for The Hobbit. Yeah. In about 1965 or 1966. That sounds right. And I immediate. I was still in high school. I immediately uh, picked them up. I don't know what tipped me off to them. And I just read through them. I was a big reader in those days, but I read through them once, twice, probably three times. Uh, I was just fascinated um, by them and the world that, that he created. And... Um, I, I associated them with this, the counterculture, uh, partially because I would I was growing up in rural Connecticut, but I had friends and family in New York City, and I would sometimes go in for weekends and meet a good friend there. We'd go down to Greenwich Village and hang out, teeny boppers, you know, 14, 15 years old, um, and we'd go do exciting adventures like buy buttons on uh, in little head shops or the equivalent of head shops on, on Bleecker Street in Greenwich Village. And I'm looking at right now two of the buttons I bought, uh, one of those ventures. One says Frodo lives in English, and the other says Frodo lives in Elvish. Yeah, and if you, if you remember, I, uh, I tried to purchase those from you, but they're too personal, which I understand. Um, they're spoken for by my son. Ah, okay, got it. And Frodo lives is not a phrase that appears in Lord of the Rings, but it's one of those heroic phrases associated sometimes with the left to, to mark its martyrs. So Malcolm X lives, or Martin Luther King lives, or so-and-so lives. So to say that Frodo lives is to identify him as the leader of or a, uh, an important figure in 
a social movement, a protest movement or a revolutionary movement akin to those that were growing up everywhere, uh, seemingly everywhere in, in the United States and elsewhere in the 1960s. So I guess also we can go into sort of broadly, um, now that we sort of know more about your background uh, with this stuff personally, what do you think in general was so attractive about Tolkien's world to the American counterculture and to the new left? Well, it certainly wasn't what Tolkien intended. I mean, let's talk a little bit about Tolkien. Here's he's an Oxford Don. You weren't a radical in those days if you were an Oxford Don. Um, he's a very strict Catholic. Uh, he's very conservative. He's a World War I vet. He served as an officer in the Western Front and had the usual horrific experiences. Um, he, uh, where he takes a lot of his imagery, actually, uh, for Lord of the Rings from that experience. Yeah, that's right. Sam and I have talked quite a bit about that. Yeah, and um, he identifies with the, the Franco side, the fascist side, the Catholic side, in uh, the Spanish Civil War, which was uh, raging wildly, just beginning to conceive and write the Lord of the Rings. Um, so he's a very conservative figure, Tory, um, but he's something else. He's, he's kind of a Tory radical, uh, which is to say um, there was a strain within British conservatism that identified very strongly with pre-industrial Britain. Um, that uh, was kind of appalled by the arrival of the Industrial Revolution um, because, you know, it created these these dark satanic mills uh, that Blake wrote about. It, it um, divided the classes, not that the classes weren't divided before then, but in the Tory imagination, everything had been hunky-dory until along comes, you know, capitalism in its modern industrial form. Um and um, it threatened the countryside. They, they were country gentry. You might live in London, but, you know, they, they identified with the country homes. And uh, it also raised this new class of striving men of industry who were uh, grubby money grubbers, uh, <laughs> capitalists in a way that, that you know, the, 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 the Tories were rich and in favor of the rich, but they, they weren't in favor of the values of, of unrestricted capitalism. So a lot of the imagery in um, uh, Lord of the Rings, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, uh, drew upon this Tory radical uh, disdain for, not opposition to, but disdain for industrial capitalism, its values, Mordor, a place of fire and ashes, um, and centralized bureaucracy. Well, centralized bureaucracy, but also, you know, a vision of, of Manchester, Newcastle, or all of these, these cities that had been transformed, you know, the wonderful days when everybody lived there, but good Anglo-Saxons or Vikings or whoever, uh, into something new and horrible. You know, with this resentful plebeian class of workmen who were stunted, you know, they're kind of orc-like. Um, so if, if you look into... Tolkien's vision, it's not, it's a very conservative vision, mm -hmm. but it's also a critique of modern industrial society, bureaucracy, as you mentioned, uh, and other things. And so you, you bring along the counterculture, which Tolkien, I'm sure, despised, we've had no use for, and they're looking at this, and, and they they pick up on that, but they give it a different um, uh, twist that Tolkien would not have been happy with. 
uh, which is um, their uh, Tolkien's, you know, stout peasant folk like uh, Frodo and Sam become countercultural hippie radicals, rebels, rebels against the system. Mordor becomes you know, contemporary American, or I imagine Britain, contemporary British society. Uh, it becomes, um, well, I mean, think about Allen Ginsberg writing in the 50s. He didn't read Tolkien, but he's writing about Moloch, you know, this New Testament God who similarly represents modern capitalism, this horrible, uh, mind-numbing, soul-destroying force. And um, uh, so people like me coming along, reading 16, 17, 18 years old, reading what Tolkien wrote, gave it our own um, interpretation. We stripped it of religious dimensions. I mean, uh, Lord of the Rings is very religious and it's very Christian, very Catholic. I mean, we didn't, well, certainly I didn't <laughs> see that in there, but I certainly saw it as a parable for um, uh, modern society uh, for racism and intolerance and warmongering and, and everything I didn't like uh, fell under the Mordor uh, category and everything I did like uh, fell under the values of Shire. Shire being you know, rural and there was a strong back to the land impulse within the, the counterculture, the hippie, or rather the hobbits, sounds like hippies, easy to mix up the two. <laughs> True. Going around, you know, they're kind of shaggy and ragged and, well, they don't dress fancily. They, um, uh, they're going to go barefoot. Uh, they're, they're fond of the simple pleasures of food, second breakfast, ale, uh, good pipe tobacco, and so forth. <laughs> yes. Uh, and yet, underneath all that, you know, they're, they're really brave and, and uh, they're really the heroes of, of the book. Uh, they're the ones who destroy the Ring of Power. And the Ring of Power, I mean, that's something I remember having slightly stoned conversations about when as a freshman in college in, in dorm <laughs> sessions about what does the Ring of Power mean? Is it the atomic bomb? No, no, that's too simple. Uh, is it, you know, just just capitalism? It's it's clearly, it's even without the religious dimension, it's, it's a kind of spiritual force because it's very tempting it seems to give you makes you omni it makes you all powerful and yet at the same time it saps you of of your inner goodness and your your inner essence and it captures you it seems to be your tool but you become a tool of it again thinking back on predecessors to the counterculture henry david thoreau talking about the locomotive <laughs> A new innovation of when he's at Walden Pond, you can hear the, the trains going by. He didn't like them at all. And he says, you know, do we ride upon the train or does the train ride upon us? He's a modern mechanized industrial society is going to destroy what all that's good and valuable in his, uh, the, the, the rural conquered of his childhood and early years. So similarly, picking up on Thoreau, picking up on Ginsburg, um, you know, the, the, the rising baby boomers of the mid-late 60s, early 70s turned to Lord of the Rings for uh, legitimation. Look, even a Hoxford Don agrees with us, which, of course, he wouldn't have done. <laughs> yeah, and so 
sort of related to uh, the the new left in, in some ways picking up on um, picking up on some of those themes and messages in in Lord of the Rings. Sam and I have have, have talked at length about um, what uh, not only what the new left saw in Lord of the Rings, but also what the old left likely would not have. Do you have any thoughts on on that and how that sort of gives the uh, gives the differences between the old and the new left? Well, I hadn't really thought about that. And again, you know, when I'm talking about the baby boom uh, identifying with Lord of the Rings, it's really more sort of the counterculture, right. which overlaps with the new left. I mean, if you imagine a Venn diagram, you get a shaded area where both new left and counterculture coexist. Uh, this is primarily a Countercultural impulse, but the different, you know, off the top of my head, you know, the old left would have said Frodo should have gone to Mordor and then organized the orcs into trade unions in their own self-interest <laughs> and store on, and uh, you know, for uh, Frodo and Sam, the orcs were beside the point or a lost cause, and uh, the only thing you could do with the system. You couldn't reform it. You couldn't even overthrow it. You had to destroy it um, yeah. by repeating its its central values as embodied in uh, the Ring of Power. So it's almost in some ways that the uh, a big part of what the counterculture or the new left would have seen in in Lord of the Rings would have been that sort of message of individualism of an individual or a small small band of individuals like taking down the system. Absolutely. I mean, this is not uh, a collectivist vision in a Marxist sense. I mean, there were people who thought of themselves as Marxists, uh, people who uh, thought of themselves as, you know, engaged in the same project as, as Lenin or Mao or whatever fantasy they entertained for a revolutionary apocalypse. But at its heart, uh, the new left was essentially individualist. It was essentially anarchist. It was essentially, well, at least my section of it, um, countercultural. Um, you know, however much Marx or Lenin we might like to read or or quote or think ourselves in the lineage of, and and uh, again, I think Lord of the Rings would not work for a for a Marxist-Leninist vision of of uh, revolution. But it was certainly in tune with my own vision of what that might mean. I guess I and I also do I appreciate your distinction there between the counterculture and and the new left because I think that that is uh probably an, an often unstated important difference. I think at least and you can correct this uh interpretation if it's wrong, but in my head the sort of uh like what I think of as the broad counterculture, I think of their sort of political engagement as being pretty singularly focused on the war in Vietnam. Well, by the late 60s, that was true. Um, okay. In the early 60s, at the emergence of the new left, the, the formation of, of SDS, Students for Democratic Society, in 1962, up through 1965, the primary focus was on um, civil rights, to uh, some extent on poverty, so on domestic issues. Uh, by 65, certainly by 67 and thereafter, the primary focus is very much on the war in Vietnam. And that also reflects the transformation of the younger civil rights movement into the black power movement. There was less room for, for young whites to make a contribution within uh, the later black movement as you know, opposed to the early movement with its interracial ideals. Um, so um, 
uh, it certainly made sense that that uh, you went where to where the most pressing issue was, and for certainly for young white males who were draft age like I was, that was Vietnam. Yeah, and also where um, you were most welcome. Yeah, no, that that's that's very true, and I, I I think I'm sort of thinking more in the in the late '60s anyway, um, and uh, so it, it's always been kind of my uh, and this I I promise this is germane to Lord of the Rings, but I think that it's always been um, my interpretation that just like looking back, you know, with 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 clear eyes that you know Hubert Humphrey would have probably been far more receptive to the demands of the youth than Nixon or or Lyndon Johnson for that matter. But what activists viewed as his complicity with the war uh, disqualified him. Uh, do you sort of agree with that? But then also more germane to the original discussion, do you think that that singular focus on Vietnam, which kind of emphasizes those differences between uh, the forces of good versus evil or the little guy versus the establishment, uh, do you think that those allowed the Tolkien readers of the movement to sort of overlook their pretty significant differences with uh, with the author's worldview? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, Hubert Humphrey would definitely have been a better president for all kinds of reasons, civil rights, civil liberties, um, labor, and you name it, than um, uh, Richard Nixon, who you could hardly imagine worse until we get to Donald Trump. <laughs> but um, uh he made it really difficult for for young people to to vote for him. Now, I was seventeen in nineteen sixty eight. I couldn't vote for him anyway. But even had I been twenty one, which was the voting age, um, I wouldn't have voted for him. And that, uh, looking back, was definitely a mistake, an error. Um, but uh, again, uh, Johnson was keeping him on a very short tether. Humphrey had initially been nervous about the war in Vietnam. He was a re resolute anti-Soviet, anti-communist figure from the late 40s on, uh, but he sensed that somehow Vietnam wasn't going to turn out well. But um, Johnson in, in 1965 basically threatened to freeze him out of any foreign policy decision-making and, and freeze him out of any chance of, of advancing to the White House uh, were he to pose him on the issue. And so down through 68, um, he kept towing the line that, you know, the war was justified. Uh, we were making great progress, which after the Tet Offensive in the beginning of 68 was pretty hard to, to believe. And uh, recall that it was people like Eugene McCarthy, senator from uh, Minnesota, and even more tellingly, Bobby Kennedy, uh, senator from New York, and John Kennedy's brother, who um, motivated the opposition to Humphrey within the Democratic Party. Uh, and um, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated before the fall, and he probably would have offered a pro forma endorsement of Hubert Humphrey. Uh, but he had already, you know, painted Humphrey in exactly the same light that the new left saw him which was someone who was, you know, pro-war. And so it wasn't just being young and naive and, and um, lacking historical perspective. All of those things were true for me, and I think for the new left and the counterculture. But uh, a lot of people uh, couldn't stomach what Humphrey had been doing. So I, I wish that had played out differently. Yes, yes. Uh, and I think I'm sort of using the the Humphrey, obviously, uh, 
Humphrey is not particularly relevant to uh, the the works of Tolkien directly. I think I'm using that as sort of a uh, um, a parallel to maybe what I think again in hindsight. I think I kind of view as like a a sort of uncompromising morality yeah. that guided a lot of the the new left and the counterculture, and that I think that. It, it may have been, it may have sort of been easy to overlook the sort of, I mean, the, Tolkien was was pretty clearly in his depictions of like Gondor and Rohan, for example, was pretty clearly a uh, a monarchist it, for for all intents and purposes. Look, one of the things that the, the later New Left, my New Left, inherited from the earlier New Left was the notion of putting your body on the line. That it wasn't enough simply to, you know, sign the right petition or vote for the right candidate, but you had to act, be actively involved in change. And, and the civil rights movement was this great morality play. I mean, the good guys were so good. Martin Luther King and John Lewis and, and Bob Moses and people like that. And the bad guys, Bull Connor and George Wallace, were so bad that, you know, there was no no point of compromise between the two. Uh, the slogan was freedom now, and that was an absolutely justifiable, absolutist, moralistic slogan. Um, what uh, was kind of forgotten was that the civil rights movement at the same time um, engaged in serious politics. It built serious political coalitions, and it had um, limited goals that it could achieve along the way towards the ultimate goal. It could achieve a civil rights act. It could achieve a voting rights act and then move on to the next. It, it wasn't all or nothing. Um, and each victory um, built strength for the next victory. Now, in the war, it was a different kind of issue. Either you ended the war or you didn't. If you ended the war, the killing stopped. If you didn't end the war, the killing went on. There was no middle ground. There was no, you know, midway legislative goal you could achieve. You had to end it all. And when the war kept going on and on, and re remember that I came aware of the war when I was in junior high school, and it ended at the conclusion in May of my first year in graduate school. The war was there for a heck of a long time, every day in the news, um, and for a good portion of that time, I had to imagine what was going to happen to me uh, when I got drafted and sent to um, Vietnam, which in the end didn't happen, but uh, that was sheer matter of luck. Um, so the, the notion of putting your body on the line, um, which in the early 60s meant sitting in at the lunch counter or marching you know, across that bridge in Selma and being beaten up by the cops, um, that meant one thing in the early 60s, increasingly in the later 60s, it took on more and more absolutist terms. You had to earn your draft card, refuse the draft, go to, go to, go to jail, or you had to, you know, not only get beaten up by the cops, but you had to not shrink from street confrontations. And for some people, that meant fighting the cops and for a tiny minority, but, you know, they were part of it. It meant turning to terrorism. So that absolutism always in the movement from the beginning, but it, it was a tempered absolutism in the early 60s becomes an absolute absolutism for many, not everybody, in the, in the late 60s. And you think of the hobbits, you think of Frodo and Sam, boy, they're the ultimate example of putting your body on the line. 
you know, they're not voting. <laughs> they're, not, they're not just supporting some king. They're the ones who are going to carry the damn ring of power into Mount um, uh, into Mordor, climb Mount Doom, and cast it into the fires, the only place it can be destroyed. They have to go 100%. There's no halfway point for them. They can't get to the gates of Mordor and say, well, okay, we did our part. We're turning back. Uh, it's it's do or die, or more, as they come to believe, uh, do and die um, uh, experience for them, commitment for them. Commitment is a big 60s word, and commitment comes to mean, you know, you can't shrink from absolutes. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a brilliant analysis. Um, I, was gonna, <laughs> I was going to um, ask uh, the, uh, so w- with Tolkien was adamant until he, until the day he died in the, in, the, in 1973, I think, that uh that frodo fails in uh in the quest to destroy the ring because he makes it into mount doom and frodo at the very very end fails to actually cast the ring into the fire and the ring's only destroyed essentially by accident when gollum attacks frodo do you see any sort of con- uh, did you was that ever i mean i guess i'm assuming that you know you would have been talking about the finer points of this story with with people back in the day which who knows maybe you were but the i i'm wondering if the uh the the power of the ring to tempt so thoroughly even someone who is essentially good and and righteous like frodo uh if you would have seen any parallel with that in that sort of anyone given sufficient temptation can turn well yeah i mean frodo is only human or he's only hobbit i mean and you know in in um uh christian doctrine um you know we all inherited adam and eve's sin we're all born in sin and we try and rise above it but remember that Gollum is not there accidentally frodo could have killed Gollum. um he had sting to run him through, and yet he doesn't, and he, I believe he uses the word pity. Sam says, kill him. Why didn't you kill him? We can't trust him. And and Frodo says, I pity him, uh, partially because he identifies with Go- Gollum is given over to sin, but Frodo could see how, you know, that could consume him, that he was once an innocent as well. He was kind of like a hobbit. Uh, and it's Frodo's values um, which are Christian values. Pity is a very big word in Christian theology. Is it Frodo's ability to feel pity for this mortal enemy and to see in him some remnant of good, which he appeals to, and which for a while uh, Gollum struggles between his good and his evil side. Uh, that's what mean, makes Gollum be there at the end. And when Frodo is too weak because he's only human or he's only hobbit, um, somehow it's foreordained. It was always meant to happen this way, that, that it would be Gollum who in, in uh, giving way to his, his, his beloved, to his, his love of the ring, spares Frodo in turn. It doesn't, that's not his intention, but he spares Frodo from, from um, death uh, and, and goes to his own death. 
So I, I, I guess I disagree with Tolkien. No, I mean, Tolkien, yeah, meant to show that Frodo did not have the strength in the end to destroy the ring, to reject evil. Um, but I, I think uh, it, it's precisely because Frodo is of an of a, a admirable quality, including the quality of pity, um, that in the end things turn out for the best. Yeah. If, if he'd killed Gollum... Uh, and he'd gotten to the fires, and, and then he had given in to temptation, well, the ring wouldn't have been destroyed. Yeah, Sam wouldn't have been able to stop him. No, I mean, I, right. And, and Sam Sam really is good. Sam is simpler. And, and yes. There's a, maybe a little condescension there. Um, Tolkien w- was very, you know, a- admired the Tommies who served with him on the Western Front, the ordinary soldiers who uncomplainingly, he would imagine, you know, went about doing their duty and getting killed. Uh, and so he imagined Sam as not very imaginative, but but loyal, doughty, strong when he needs to be strong. Um, so Sam is part of that story, too. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's, there's another aspect of the Frodo taking pity on Gollum. I think that uh, if... if if memory serves, I think in The Hobbit, when Bilbo is, uh, you know, doing the riddles with Gollum in the cave, I think there it he also Tolkien also uses the word pity to describe Bilbo's feeling toward yeah. Gollum. Uh, and then the the uh, the other thing I wanted to point out is that uh, the idea of how it ends up being foreordained, uh, I think is it's almost explicitly stated in the book because when they are in the mines of Moria. Uh, and Frodo sort of senses that Gollum is trailing them in the shadows, and he asks something along the lines, or he asks Gollum, or uh, excuse me, he asks Gandalf something along the lines of, "Well, shouldn't we, you know, should we go back there and confront him?" And Gandalf says something like, "No, leave him be. He still has a part to play in all of this." Yeah, I mean, Gandalf sees the future and the past, and you know, he's been around for millennium, so. Um, yeah, I mean, if if Tolkien knows that, I'm not sure why he would say Frodo failed. I mean, Frodo Frodo did what was foreordained. Yeah, I guess I guess that's true. I think that uh, I think probably the the failure is the giving in to temptation, regardless, and that. Uh, but but I your your point is very much taken that the the taking pity on Gollum earlier in showing that act of uh, of grace is what uh and mercy is what actually saves everything it's his it's his uh his righteous decision earlier that saves him from his own folly later right and he's he's superior in that way to the other men heroes uh who certainly have their their role to play but you know you can't quite imagine that maybe gandalf as a wizard would have had that degree of wisdom um, but, um, Aragorn, um, well, certainly not Boromir, <laughs> uh, you know, they would have, they would have acted just as warriors and Frodo is a warrior. He's also a saint. Yes. Um, okay. I think that, uh, if it sounds like a rap to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If, as, do you have any sort of final thoughts that you wanted to get out or, or no? No, that's great. I mean, I didn't even have all those thoughts until you asked good questions. And then... <laughs> well, I think that's about all of our time. So uh, again, thanks so much, Professor, for, for joining me. Oh, thank you, Kenny. It was fun to reminisce and think back on The Lord of the Rings, which I don't do often enough. <laughs> you should revisit it. I should revisit. I should reread it. 
Yeah, and check out, I don't know if you ever have, but definitely read the, the Silmarillion and the other stuff too. Well, I tried the Silmarillion and I got about five pages in and uh, it was so-and-so begat so-and-so and, you know, it was like the Old Testament. I gave up. <laughs> okay, well, thanks again. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Hosted by Sam Lieberman and Kenny Tallarico. Our cover art is by Claire Harple. Our theme music is by Kenny Tallarico. Any materials or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes. <laughs>